Thank you, Brother Joseph. Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter 9. We're going to do the first 10 verses, and then we'll go to our New Testament reading of 1 John chapter 5. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Uh, You will notice that the LSB actually translates the divine name, the covenant name, Yahweh. And it's important that we speak and use his name. He reveals it to us in Exodus chapter 3 and says, this is my memorial name. And he wants his name to be known. So we're going to read this morning, Psalm 9, we'll go verses 1 through 10. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my justice and my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. And you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's go to to, uh, 1 John chapter 5, and we'll read this chapter. 1 John chapter 5, in the back of your New Testament, if you have a little trouble finding it. 1 John 5, 1. The Apostle John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everything that has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the overcoming that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth, for there are three that bear witness The spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness about his son. 
the one who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness which God has borne witness about his Son. And the witness is this, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have that life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him, give, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who has been born of God sins, but he who was begotten of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. The word of the Lord. I tell you, I just love this time of year. I think the older I get, the more I love it, you know. It's just, wish we could maintain it. Well, it's marvelous to see everyone this morning. Thank you for being here. I want to thank Brother Richard for preaching the word last Sunday. And uh, in my absence, I'm very grateful for him and for his uh, faithfulness to the word of God. Uh, you know, when, uh, when he's in the pulpit, I don't have to wonder if uh, the word's going to be preached or not. He'll preach it. So thank you, Brother, very much. Let's pray together. Father, please now. Come and help me. Forgive me, Lord, for my failures and my weaknesses. I pray for strength. I pray to be a faithful man of God in everything that I say and I think and I do. And, Lord, I pray for anyone here who this morning recognizes his frailty, his weakness we can put on a show on the outside and look one way but be completely different on the inside. So, Lord, if there's a brother or a sister, a man or a woman here today who's struggling, I pray that you'd speak to him or her. And I pray, Lord, that Christ would be revealed in his glory in a way that the eyes of our souls can see. Thank you, Father, so much for your holy word. We ask for your help now as we 
attempt to proclaim it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night I saw for the first time a clip of Joe Rogan interviewing Ben Shapiro. You may or may not recognize these names. Rogan asked Shapiro, what do you think Jesus was? And Shapiro, who's a Jew and a quick thinker and extremely fast-talking, if you've ever listened to him, I mean, he really talks like this. You can hardly understand the thing he's saying. He gets to speak so fast. I'm not kidding if you've ever heard him. Here was the answer that Shapiro gave. The question was, what do you think Jesus was? And he said, I think he was a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and got killed for his trouble. Just like a lot of other Jews at the time who were crucified for trying to lead revolts against the Romans. That was his answer. Now, I looked him up, and Ben Shapiro is uh, evidently a very smart man. Uh, He's highly educated, a keen thinker. He graduated summa cum laude from UCLA with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He earned his Doctor of Jurisprudence at Harvard Law School. So he's one of the sharper knives in the drawer. His elevator does go all the way to the top, you know. And yet that was his answer. Does Rogan's question remind you of a similar question that Jesus himself posed? Remember this, let me just read it to you. Um, I'll read from Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? It's a question we've all got to answer, by the way. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ben Shapiro, you're a Jewish man. You're smart. You're a lawyer, a columnist, an author, a conservative political commentator. Who do you say Jesus is? He's a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and got killed for his trouble. Simon Peter, you're also a Jewish man, capable, small businessman, fisherman. You're not very highly educated, though, uh, certainly compared to Ben. Probably never been mistaken for an intellectual. But I'll ask you, who do you say Jesus is? He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Friends, how does Peter... Get it right when Ben gets it wrong. When Ben is so refined and Peter is so rough. Well, Jesus actually tells us. He says uh, in chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 17, Jesus answered and said to, to him, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because... Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you've not realized who I really am because of intellectual prowess or your own wisdom. No, you've realized who I actually am 
Because my Father has supernaturally revealed it to you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You see that? This, ladies and gentlemen, is the power of God in human life. And we can come in, we can come to church, we can get together, and we can... You know, we can be going through religious motions. We can say, oh, I've heard this all my life. It could be disinteresting to us, you know, or just waiting for this to be over. And all of a sudden, God comes and He speaks to your heart, opens your blind eyes, and you see everything differently, including Jesus. If you're not moved by Him, you've never seen Him. And I want to say to you, you're in the right place. Because here we Preach Christ. You'll go to some churches and you know you won't hear Him preached. And you'll walk in lost and leave lost. Because without Christ being proclaimed, there's no salvation. So I hope you're listening with me. We're at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. My subject this morning is the power of God in a human life. And we're at 1 Corinthians 1.18. We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Written by the Apostle Paul from Ephesus to the church in Corinth around A.D. 55. Hear now the sacred scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What an incredible word. My title this morning is The Power of God in the Word of the Cross. Now before we unpack these verses, just a bit about the two groups that Paul mentions in verses 22 and 23, the Jews and the Greeks. Okay, First, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham. If you'll take your Bible and go back over to Genesis chapter 12, Let's look at Genesis 12, 1. See if we can get a little insight about the Jews, the descendants of Abram. 
or Abraham as he was later called. Genesis 12, 1. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now over to chapter 13, verse 14. 1314, and Yahweh said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And then to Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And the Lord brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to Abram, so shall your seed be. Then he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. So the Jews are this first group that Paul mentions back over in 1 Corinthians 1. The seed of Abraham, the descendants. Uh, God promised him. And the Greeks are the second group that he mentions. They are the Gentiles, the ones of non-Jewish birth. So two distinct groups, right? Jews and Greeks. And these two groups have distinct interests. The Jews are interested in supernatural signs. Uh, Their thinking is, we'll believe you if you can show us a miracle. And by the way, that's how the false messiahs gained such traction among the Jewish people. They promised signs. For example, the Roman Jewish historian Flavius Josephus tells of a false messiah between 46 and 44 B.C. by the name of Thutis. He writes, It came to pass while Phaedus was procurator of Judea that a certain charlatan, whose name was Thutis, persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. For he told them that he was a prophet and that he would by his own command divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. Many were deluded by his words. However, Phaedus did not permit them to make any advantage of his wild attempt, but sent a troop of horsemen out against them, and falling upon them unexpectedly, the horsemen slew many of them and took many of them alive. They also took Thutis alive, cut off his head, and carried it to Jerusalem. Another sign promiser, this time in AD 54, around the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, this letter that we're studying. This sign promiser arrived in Jerusalem from Egypt, and he claimed he was the prophet, promising that at his command the walls of Jerusalem would collapse 
30,000 Jews followed him to the Mount of Olives only to discover that he couldn't produce. He was a false Messiah. So, supernatural signs, supernatural wonders, you see, these were the, the interest of the Jews. And by the way, turn over to Matthew chapter 16 in your Bible, Matthew 16. We're going to see this. You remember how they handled Jesus, the Jews? Matthew 16, 1. There are other examples. There's an example in Mark 8 and Luke 11 and John 2, but for time's sake, we won't look at those. Just look at this one. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, I'm at Matthew 16, 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and testing him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. See? But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. He's referring to his resurrection. The truth is, Jesus gave the Jews more than enough proof of his Messiahship. You remember what Nicodemus said to him when Nicodemus came to see Jesus by night? He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless what? God is with him. They knew. But it was wicked unbelief that resisted everything that God showed them. The, the signs, the Jews, that's their interest, is the point I'm trying to make. What about that other group, the Greeks? Well, their interest lay in wisdom, in systems of philosophy that exalted human reasoning. As one put it, the Greeks were intoxicated with fine words. Oh, if you could speak, you were really good at it. You had a hook in the Greeks. They sought out, they prized silver-tongued orators who could finally package rational proofs. That's why you may recall when Paul preached in Acts 17, the resurrection of Christ, verse 32 says that the Greek philosophers began to sneer. The Greek indicates an outbreak of derision. If any of you read the New Living Translation, it says they laughed in contempt at Paul's preaching of the resurrection. So that's the two distinct groups. And we got it, the Jews and the Greeks. And they've got distinct interests. The Jews demand what? Signs. The Greeks, wisdom. Now, listen, I took a while, I realized, to set that up. But, but I'm trying to set up the problem. Do you see the problem now? What chance... This is what Paul calls in verse 18, the word of the cross, the word, the message of a crucified Messiah. What chance does that word stand of ever being accepted by such people? 
it stands no chance. To the Jews, says the pulpit commentary, the cross was the tree of shame and horror. And a crucified person was accursed of God. To the Greeks, the cross was the gibbet of a slave's infamy and a murderer's punishment. And Barnes notes that death on a cross was associated with the idea of all that is shameful and dishonorable. To speak of salvation only by the sufferings and death of a crucified man was fitted to excite in both Jews and Greeks only unmingled scorn. You've got to be kidding me. And this is Paul's message? He's going around preaching to Jews and Greeks, Christ crucified? Are you kidding? And yet Paul says, verse 23, look at your Bible. We preach. Now listen, preaching is is an announcement. We announce. We proclaim. What? See, no, no flowery speech. No sophisticated rhetoric. No, we just proclaim, we preach, Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. The Greek word scandalon, from which we get our English word, anybody guess? Scandalous, scandal. Anything in the way over which one may stumble, anything that gives offense or causes one to fall into sin. To Jews, the preaching of Christ crucified is something they stumble over. And to Gentiles, he says, verse 23, it's what? You got it? Hello? Foolishness! Foolishness! Just making sure my mic was working. So I'm going to ask you again. What chance... Does the word of the cross stand of ever being accepted by these groups, Jews and Greeks? And I'm going to answer again, no chance. But for the power of God. See, there was a time when none of us in this room believed upon Jesus. We thought all of this was just, a, you know, we just didn't get it. Maybe we even mocked it. We, we thought that. And then the power of God came upon our sin-sick souls. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. See verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Changing hearts, Changing lives, making saints out of sinners, even preachers out of persecutors. Right, Paul the Apostle? You remember what you were, Paul? Oh, Paul says, I, I remember exactly what I was. And he says in 1 Timothy 1.12, I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love 
which are in Christ Jesus. The power of God in the word of the cross. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, the mistake that the evangelical church has been making the past 30 or 40 years listening to these so-called church growth experts tell us that to reach the unbelieving world, we got to look like the world. We've got to act like the world. We got to talk like the world. We got to sound like the world. We got to sing like the world. We got to think like the world, dress like the world, platform like the world, organize like the world. This has been being broadcasted across evangelical Christianity for decades and decades and decades. And what's the result? What's the mistake? The mistake is forsaking the power of God in the word of the cross. We've relied on human power and human wisdom. And the result, hardly an evangelical church that's reached an unbelieving world, but more an unbelieving world that's reached the evangelical church. As Christian apologist Oz Guinness puts it, churches in America are both in the world and of the world. And as a result are in a condition of profound cultural captivity. Cultural captives. Whatever the culture is saying, the church is doing. We're captives and in many cases we don't even know it. Or don't care. I uh, told a Bible study on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago about seeing a video montage of a church in Florida at worship. In one clip, now this is a montage, so they're taking clips Sundays, various Sundays and putting them all together. In one of those clips, they were singing in worship. Aerosmith's Walk This Way. In another clip, a guy rides down, rides a motorcycle down the aisle. He's got a young woman sitting on the back of the motorcycle. And uh, apparently they're recreating a scene from Top Gun because while all this is going on, they've got these big, you know, giant screens and they're showing movie clips from Top Gun in worship. In another clip, a guy was dressed up like Spider-Man and he was singing and he was rapping. And he somehow they dropped him down, you know, like, uh, like Spider-Man, you know, he dropped down to the floor. They killed the lights, made it look like he was falling. And all of a sudden the light came on and there's Spider-Man. You see? Cultural captives. What's happened? To the contemporary church, we, I, I tell you, we, we've stopped reading our Bibles closely. That's one thing. And we're not maintaining its teachings. That's another. Had we read our Bibles closely, we'd have, we would have read 1 Corinthians 1, wouldn't we? And we would have known to keep looking to the power of God 
for the salvation of lost men and women, not looking at the word of the cross, not looking at the wisdom of man. Now listen what Paul tells the Corinthians. The reason, verse 18, we're going to hurry. The reason the word of the cross is foolish is to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God is because, verse 19, it is written, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. See, Judah had was being threatened by the Assyrian Sennacherib. And so instead of turning to God, relying upon God to handle this powerful Assyrian superpower, they turn to Egypt and try to form an alliance. And God says, that kind of quote-unquote wisdom I'm going to destroy. And the way he destroyed it was he brought down Sennacherib for them. This supernaturally brought him down. In other words, it's about God's power. You see, that's what verse 19 is saying. So that Paul can issue this challenge to the Corinthians who are fixating on man's power and man's wisdom. Verse 20, he says to them, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where's your answer? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Look at the wisdom of of today's world. It is foolish. (sighs) Never seen anything like it. Yes, God has made foolish the so-called wisdom of the world because the wisdom of the world is useless in rescuing souls. That's why the emperor Marcus Aurelius, despite symbolizing the golden age of the Roman Empire, nonetheless perished in his sins. You see, Marcus Aurelius was a a Stoic, and he, he relied on a Stoic philosophy. When he came to the end of his life, you know what happened? It didn't set him free from death, and it sure didn't set him free from sin's penalty. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, the preaching of the gospel, that the world regards as foolish, to save those who believe. And listen, only those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Here's our verse, you know, we talked about earlier. Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, there's that word again. Do you know which word I'm talking about? The word called. You see it in verse 24? If you look back at verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In other words, he means authoritatively, effectively summoned. Verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints again, authoritatively, effectively summoned. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship. With His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, authoritatively, effectively, summoned into fellowship, you see. And now verse 24, to those who are the called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, as Gill says, effectively called by the grace of God, not merely externally, but internally. Listen, I'm calling every one of you. I don't know who you are or, or, or where you are in your walk with God, if you even know God, but I'm calling every one of you, you hear my words? To believe upon Christ, you're hearing the external call of the gospel. He's talking here about the internal call of God and in the Holy Spirit as he speaks and converts. That stubborn human heart, you see, called out of darkness, savingly illuminated by the Spirit of God. They see wisdom, beauty, glory, excellency, and suitableness in Christ and in his gospel, having felt the power of the call upon their souls. Isn't that what happened to you, Christian? You were lost and somebody preached the gospel and it's like all of a sudden the scales dropped from your eyes and you said, I see the Lord Jesus in His glory. I need His forgiveness. Up until that time you thought it was foolishness. Ah, but the power of God. That's what was happening all across the Roman Empire, miraculously, by the gracious, powerful calling of God. All of a sudden, people from the two, remember the two, no chance of winning them groups, right? The Jews, uh, all of a sudden, Paul's preaching the gospel, and they're coming to faith in the crucified Christ. And he's preaching the gospel more. And the Greeks, the Gentiles, they're coming to faith in the crucified Christ. Jews are discovering after all that in the cross of Christ, there's the mightiest of miracles. And the Gentiles, the Greeks are discovering that after all, in the cross of Christ, there's the profoundest wisdom. Because last verse, verse 25, the foolishness of God, that is what He requires, what He commands, what He does, that appears foolish to men, is wiser than men. Because that wisdom accomplishes, or that foolishness accomplishes everything God designs. And the weakness of God What he did for man's salvation on the cross in giving his son, which appears weak and insufficient to men, the weakness of God is stronger than men because, again, it accomplishes everything that God designs. The power of God in the word of the cross. Now, may I ask you a question? What is the word of the cross to you? Is it foolishness or is it wisdom? If it's foolishness, do you know why it's foolishness? The Bible tells you why. Verse 18, it's because you're perishing. You need rescue. You need Christ. He offers Himself to you. To be your Savior, to be your Lord. 
The way to be saved is simply to trust in what the Son of God did when He became man and suffered the punishment for all who would ever trust in Him. Are you willing to receive Christ into your life? If God's Spirit is indeed working in your heart, then I would just encourage you right where you're sitting to call upon His name. He will save you. He'll save you. Call upon His name. Ask Him to save you. He'll do it right now, right where you're seated. And then after we're done, if you'll come... See, I'm not, I'm not a salesman. I'm announcing what Christ has done. After we're done today, come talk to me about getting baptized and publicly taking your stand with Jesus who died that you might be saved. That's if the word of the cross is foolishness to you. But listen, if it's wisdom, you're sitting here listening to me and you're thinking, oh, thank you, God, for what you did on the cross in giving your son. Thank you. If it's wisdom, then praise Him for His power in saving you. Do you see that? You're saved? For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. I close with this. Anyone remember William F. Buckley? Does that name ring a bell? Years ago, long time, he had a show called Firing Line. I can remember, I was, I was pretty young then, but I can remember William F. Buckley. When he passed back in 2008, the New York Times printed how he, quote, marshaled polysyllabic exuberance, famously arched eyebrows, and a refined perspicacious mind, end quote. Greg, the Greeks would have swooned at language like that right there. Oh, that's, that's what they so love. And if he was really all that, I have a suspicion that some of the Corinthians would have started going around saying, I am of William. Because they so admired intellect and refined speech. But you know what it got him when it came time to die? Listen to this. It's written by an acquaintance. It's short. Concerning his final days on earth. William F. Buckley, a man still working but wearied and burdened. The emphysema that took his life also gave, in this case, an oxygen gizmo that became a regular companion. This surely was not how he must have envisioned the golden years. One's greeting of, Hi, Bill, how are you, was returned matter-of-factly 
decomposing. Hi, Bill, how are you doing? Decomposing. No hope. Don't die like that. Please don't die like that. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look to Him. Trust Him. The power of God in the Word of the Cross. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank You for the Word of the Cross. Thank You that we now get to worship our Lord and Savior, the Crucified One, remembering Him at His table. Father, I pray that if there's one lost here today that doesn't know a Jesus to remember, that the call would be heard. And he or she would respond in faith, I believe. And I will follow the crucified one the rest of my days. Lord, would you do that miracle? We will not stop proclaiming Jesus. We won't stop preaching Christ and Him crucified. Help us. Lord, show forth your power, we pray, for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day.